when you, uh, you start a new year or you start a new series, it's kind of always a time when you think, well, what's coming? Uh, what does God, uh, where, what direction is he leading us in? And uh, I shared, I think just briefly before Christmas, that I believe that the direction that God's leading us in is the same as he's been leading us in for quite some time now. So, um, and I, I was asked a question on that this week, which is, because we, we have a vision statement. Every church has a vision statement. Nobody remembers ours because everybody thinks it's rooted and grounded in love, which is amazing. You should think it's rooted and grounded in love, but actually it's to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. And the, the question was, how does that tie in with everything else that God talks to us about and he's been saying to us? And it's like this, that, that he, our, our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. But our way of doing it, that, that God has currently put on our hearts and, and we have been talking about for, I guess, about 12, 15 months now, is growing and going. Growing up into all the things that are already stored up inside us. Because a lot of us have a lot of stuff in us that we haven't done a lot with. And we don't draw on those resources. So it's growing up into that and going and taking that beyond the walls of the church. And so when we, when we think about that, I was, I was asking God, uh, like, where do, we, where do we go next? And he dropped this word into my heart. It's been there buzzing around for several years now, but it's this word radical. And, and radical is... You'll find out what it's about over the next few weeks. But in a sense, it's about rediscovering our core excitement for Christ. That first love. You know, like in, in Revelation, uh, Jesus, one of the letters to the church, he says, you've lost your first love. And I, I think that's become common in our generation. And now... There's one or two things that I want to say about that before I actually get into the preach. I haven't started the preach yet. But it's this. The first of these is that... Um, how can I put it? We often... We, we, we've made a transition in our minds that has come about in our desire and God's desire to communicate to us how much he loves us. And in that transition, something's happened in our, our thinking so that it has become a discord where we think, we pray, and God just does what we want. Now, let me explain that. God's always promised to keep his promises. But the way the kingdom works and the way we've been exploring it, we have a responsibility within that, to do the works of the kingdom that bring about the answers to our prayers. You see, we can't be responsible for everybody who's not in the kingdom. We can't even be responsible for some of the people who are in the kingdom and behave abysmally at times. And we live in this fallen world that everybody now is waking up to tell us he's dying. Well, the Bible's been telling us the world has been dying for six or 7,000 years. So that's not news to a Christian. It's just that the world's woken up to it. What I'm coming down to is this. We live in a war zone. And many of us uh, experience the effects of that war in our own lives. Through people, through situations, through things that have happened to us. And to wage war... As kingdom people, we need the radical simplicity of the gospel. Because one of the greatest things the enemy has done is he's complicated the gospel. He's, he, he, he's, there's just so much stuff around. Now, I want to ask you, I just want to say something um, at, the, at the risk of drawing your attention to something. But these chairs are not our idea. These chairs just appeared at the first meeting of the year and the old ones have gone. Now, 
I'm not saying this is God, but I am saying we could regard these as a prophetic sign for getting out of our comfort zones. If you, don't fan, if you fancy doing that in transitional stages, I would advise cushions under your arms when you come to church. But it, <laughs> my point is this, that, that there is nothing achieved within our comfort zones. And I'll come back onto that in a minute. When God dropped this word, rad, uh, by the way, I'm starting to preach now. When God dropped this word radical into my heart, it came like this. I was actually looking at some of the moves of God that are taking place on our planet at this moment. And often we, 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 get, uh, we miss really what God is doing on a, on a global basis because we're so caught up in the hype of people almost marketing Christianity to us. I know that might sound like a hard word, but I think, I think that's the truth. I think we've, we, we, we've got a lot to shift. And, and it's part of being radical, we need to shift those things. So I, I was thinking about that, and I was looking at the moves of God that are taking place at the moment. You know, thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases hundreds of thousands, coming into the kingdom on a weekly basis. In places like China, places like Taiwan, places like Vietnam, places like Iran, places we, we don't expect. Because we, we look at church and we get focused on what church is. And here's the thing. This is what God asked me. He said... And I'm now going to ask you the same question. What would your, how would your Christianity, how would your relationship with God turn out if all we had in our meetings was some Bible study, one person with a guitar and prayer? Because we do all this. And you can do all this on bigger and bigger scales. And you can do all this with lights and smoke machines. And you can do all this in grand, huge buildings. But the truth is, everywhere God is moving on planet Earth right at the moment, it's one man with a Bible, leading a Bible study, one person with a guitar and a lot of prayer. And it costs nothing. Because if it costs anything in any of these countries, they wouldn't be able to do it. And we need to, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying sometimes it becomes a substitute. And, and we can grumble about things. You can grumble about the chairs being harder than the other chairs. But you grumbled about the chairs being heavy before. So it's, <laughs> it's just like, like what the point here is Jesus. The point is God. The point is the kingdom. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's why this, this word radical came. What would it be like if that's how we were doing church? If that's all we had, how would we turn out? And here's the sad thing, because the first thing that came into my head, I'm not saying this is coming to your head. I'm kind of hoping it's not coming to your head. But the first thing that came into my head is, man, I guess a lot of people would turn around and say, if that's all this church is, I'll go somewhere else. And that's so often why we miss the beauty of the simplicity of the radical gospel. Do you, do you get this? And I know it's a new year, but if I don't say at the start of new year, I miss my chance. So here we go. All right. Um, I'll, I'll also tell you where we're going over the rest of the year. Because this is kind of, it started here and then became cumulative. So we're going to look at, at, at this, this radical gospel that we have. And then after that, we're going to be heading into how we develop and, and enter into a deeper and deeper relationship with God by being in the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
From that, coming towards the summer, we're going to be looking at what Paul calls the foundations of faith. There's a little passage in, in Corinthians where he says, I don't want to lay again the foundations of the faith, but I want to get on to other, some other things. And I don't know if you've ever read that list, but it's really scary because it's all the sort of things we don't talk about in church. Because we don't talk about the foundations. And then when something comes along, people fall over because we get away from those foundations. And then for the rest of the year, summer onwards, we're going to release some power. Because from August through to Christmas, I'm going to preach on prayer. We're going to look at what it means to pray the new covenant, to believe God, to take him at his word and to see results. So that's where we're going. Okay, you, you with it? So you should be excited now. Either that or you've said the chairs are too hard, I'm going somewhere else. What does it mean to be radical? Um, so I had to go back to like the dictionary because radical can mean so many things to so many people. You don't have to have some sort of beard and a, and a slogan t-shirt to be radical. You don't have to be any particular age to be radical. You can be ra radical at the age of two and you can be radical at the age of 92. So that should get everybody in here who's capable of actually doing full sentences, yeah? So radical, what does it mean? Radical means to affect the fundamental nature of something. It's far-reaching, thorough, um, to the root or the core of something. Comprehensive. In some senses, radical can also mean advocating or based on thorough or complete social change. That's the sort of radicals that we, we recognize. Jesus certainly did that. Uh, it's, it's extreme, according to the dictionary, extreme or revolutionary. We, we just need to get a little bit of a grasp that Christianity is extreme. There isn't a, a, a sort of dulled down level of Christianity. Christianity dulled down is not Christianity at all. It's Jesus brought it to be extreme, to be countercultural, to be revolutionary. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel sad sometimes because one of the things that happened when I started putting uh, things up on Facebook for this series is I found out that those posts didn't really go anywhere. Very few people saw them compared to who sees my normal posts. Why is that? Because it has the word radical in it, and somebody decided it isn't going anywhere. Because the radical nature of the gospel has been stolen by the word radicalization in other religions. Jesus was the first radicalizer. But Jesus didn't just radicalize people into a religion or a creed or a set of politics. Jesus radicalized people by changing them from the inside out and giving them a new life, a new heart, and a salvation that they didn't pay for. That's the real radical. And so here's, here's a question for us, just to ponder. I'm not expecting an answer. So is church radical? Is it? Is it? Is it radical? Would, would people recognize us as radical? If we aren't, what we've done is we've gone through a process there of saying, so what do I think radical is and what have we got in here? And you've compared the two and come to the conclusion we're not radical. So we have to answer a more basic question. The more basic question is this, so what's so radical about Christianity? What's so radical about Christianity that we're saying that we haven't got? And, and what are the consequences? What, what happens if church doesn't respect, re, reflect that radical nature of the faith that we're proclaiming? What, what, what happens as a result of that? So here we go. As believers, if there is a difference between what our experience is and what we think 
is the radical nature of Christianity, then we need to realize what is the root or the core of Christianity and why that is so far-reaching, so life-changing and so revolutionary. Because if we're going to be radical, we need to know how we're meant to be radical, don't we? And so we need to understand what is the radical root of Christianity. So you see, what happens when we miss that essence of Christianity, our lives don't look different from those around us. And, you know, we, we come up with little disjoins. And, and, and the big disjoint we, we went down for, I guess, the last 15, 20 years is we asked the world what it would like our church to look like in order so we could get them in through the door. That's, that's just the wrong way around. The church was never meant to be the result of a marketing survey to see how many people would come if we did different things. The church was meant to be the result of love and power and a radical salvation that sets alight those who have been saved. So here's my next question, the uncomfortable ones. How radical would people say you are? Those that you come into contact with every day, how radical would they say you are? How different would people say you are to everybody else who works where you do or lives where you do? How different are we? I'm not saying we, we, we go crazy and we, we wear strange outfits and, or whatever, but people should be able to say they're really different. They react to things differently. They deal with things differently. They see things differently. Here's the problem. When we get stuck in our comfort zone of church and our Christianity, and here's the reason we get stuck in that comfort zone, because our Christianity has become a place we go to to escape from the pressure of the world and, and, and all the stuff that's, that we need to do to make life happen. And so we, we, we start to look at our Christianity as like this comfort zone where a bit of a little escape pod. But the problem with the comfort zone is that the magic doesn't happen there. The magic happens in a different place from our comfort zone. So if we're going to see some magic, some some excitement of the gospel, it's got to be outside where we've, we, we've retreated to. Church, church isn't meant to be a padded recovery bed. Our Christianity is meant to be something that people look at and go, wow, that's different. Because this world needs it more than ever. Because, you, you know, like you look at the news, there's no alternative opinions coming on there, no alternative views. Nobody's saying anything different. It's like everything's falling apart, isn't it? And yet we're the carriers of hope. Yeah. People should get around us and go, like, there's hope, guys. There's hope. Because I've seen some people who've got some hope. And they're excited about it. And, and, and you know what? They're enjoying it. Here's a little sentence. I, I mean, this is coming from my journal, by the way. This, this is a little sentence that God dropped. Into, into my, when we confine our lives to our comfort zones, we fail to capture the wonder and joy and passion of the life we are made for. And what we're missing is this radical, revolutionary, fully lived out Christian life. That's what's missing. When we're not excited, that means that we are not... Uh, we, we've got missing this radically, fully, fully lived out Christian life. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to lead you through quite a chunk of scripture. It's, it's written by a radical prophet. His name's Ezekiel. You should be able to find Ezekiel. Big book, middle of the Bible. Go find it. And you want chapter 30. Well, no, let me take you to chapter 6 first. We're going to be in there for a bit this morning because we're going to look at two big chunks of it. So is this guy Ezekiel. Anybody know much about Ezekiel? If you don't, that's okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. 
Ezekiel, as a prophet, he's ministering during some really dark days of the people of Judah. The, the people of Israel, the, the, 10 of the 12 tribes have disappeared completely by this point. They've all gone into captivity, been scattered. But there's two tribes, the people of Judah, and now they've been taken into captivity too. And Ezekiel, when he writes his, his prophecies or when he receives his prophecies and gives them, he's in captivity in Babylon. So these are, these are words out of captivity. And it, and it comes... These words come into this dark situation, this darkness, with a message of what? Hope. And this message of hope is about a God who's going to breathe new life in a radical way into a captive people. Breathe new life in a radical way into a captive people. And God's purpose in doing that is so that his people will know that he is Lord. God's way of letting the world know he is Lord is to build, breathe new life into a people who are captive, who have been captive, taken captive by other things. And these people, the people that Ezekiel's writing to, they're captive uh, to the nations because Actually, they brought, according to Ezekiel, they brought about their own captivity. And we find out that their captivity to the nations was painful to God. It hurt him. It hurt him. It, it broke his heart. He didn't want them in that situation. And yet they'd become captive to other nations. Now, go with me to Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. I'll start at verse 8, actually. Yet I will leave a remnant. Say remnant. remnant. You could substitute radical people for that. Remnant. Say remnant. remnant. So that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered throughout the countries. Then those of you escape will... Rem so those of you escape the captivity of the nations will remember me among the nations where they were carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous hearts. This is God saying, when you turned your heart away from me and you ran after all the things of the world and you started to look like the world and your life was so encapsulated by the world that you were taken captive to all the mechanisms of the world, it crushed my heart. It crushed my heart that, that you let that happen. That, that you placed the love of those things before the love of me. Because I was crushed by their adulterous hearts which departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. We choose our idols. We choose our own idols. This isn't people who were forced to worship other idols. These are people who chose their own idols, things before God. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. So basically what that's saying is that these people got themselves in this situation and they actually hated being there but didn't know what to do about it anymore because they've been so taken captive by the world. Does, it, does that make sense? So here's what God's promising. He's promising that there will always be a radical remnant. And when you see prophecy worked out in the Bible, it's a bit like, I, I grew up in the Lake District and we, you know, we were often taken off from school and we had to go on walking things. Now, they're, they're great about three days a year. The rest of the time, you cannot see more than two foot in front of you because of the fog and the rain. But when it's nice, it's beautiful. But what you find is in the Lake District, as with any uh, mountain ranges, you, you, you climb to the top of this mountain and you're going there and you're looking and you get to the top and you think, yeah. 
And the only thing you can now see in front of you is an even bigger mountain. Because having got to the top of one mountain, there's a bigger panorama that unfolds. And biblical prophecy works like that. There's, there's partial fulfillments, shadow fulfillments, types and shadow fulfillments, and full fulfillments. And biblical prophecy works like that. It's, the, the Bible has patterns all the way through it. And so what this is saying is that God's way of working when the church becomes captive to the world is to always have a remnant, the radical people, the radical remnant. And it's his recurring plan to keep a remnant from the times that the world closes in and captivates his church. I believe that we are right at that moment and have been for some years now where the world has captivated the church. And, and, and we're doing some dysfunctional things. Go with me, chapter 36, Ezekiel as well, so you just have to turn over your pages. And I'll start at verse 1. You son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said, to, said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession, therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, the cities have been forsaken, which have become plunder and mockery for the rest of the nation. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. God is jealous for his people. God wants his people back. And I'll take it one step further. God wants his church back. Yeah. Therefore, says the Lord, should I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations, against all Edom, who gave my land, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Now, what... what what do we see in those verses? Here's the thing that biblical prophecy applies on one level to Israel and on another level, it shows us patterns that play out in a fallen world and how God's people interact with that world. And, and that, that's the level I'm looking at that, this on. There is a specific application of all these things to Israel itself. But I'm looking at it, how it applies in a pattern to the way God deals with people and how God's people uh, uh, negotiate a fallen world. So here's the thing that I, when I read that, I read that and it, it just really brought home to me that he is speaking to times like our own. The enemy that is the world... He's laughing at and mocking the church to the extent that the church is evidently different from the world. He stopped laughing at a lot of the church because it's just like the world. But the, as we've taken on the standards of the world, actually they think that's kind of funny. The enemy thinks that's kind of funny. He thinks he's winning. And just look at those phrases. The ancient heights have become our possession. The, the things that held our society together, the, the foundational underpinning of our law and justice, the, the, the underpinning of us as a nation being generous and charitable and kind and loving, the underpinning of, of faith within our nation has been taken. And they've taken, the, the enemy has taken the church as its own possession by backing us into a corner. 
He's taken hold. You, you drive around Cambridge and you see this. You see this in every single town. Places and buildings that were previously dedicated to God and now housing developments are dedicated to another God. We have Christian churches who sell buildings to other religions to worship their gods in because they offer the highest price. There's something wrong with that logic. Yeah. And they justify it. They go, oh, well, you know, we, we, have a, we have a duty to our members and our, 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 the charity commission and all that. No, you have a duty to your God. And the charity commission wants to see you fulfill your original purposes that you put in your document, which was to worship your God. We've got a spiritual heritage possessed by them in using for their own purposes. What that's talking about is that the traditions that were so valuable and so loved and important in church life have now become traditions that are used for the purposes of man, for their agendas and their gods. And what this says is that agenda, this agenda of the enemy made us desolate and swallowed us up. Here's the question. Why does the enemy want to get into the church? And it's answered in that, that passage. Why can't they just leave us alone? Why can't they just leave the church alone? Get on with it. They leave everything else alone. Everything else is okay, isn't it? But why can't we just leave the church alone? Because if you take the church, the land is open for plunder. There is a spiritual thing where the church protects the nation, the heart of the nation. So if, we can, if, if the enemy can take the church, if the world can take the church, he can plunder the nation. He can use the church to change people's beliefs towards the enemy. I think this is where we live in. So, in this, what is the remnant? The remnant are a people, you know, it's made up of those who refuse to forget what was planted in their hearts long ago. Most of most of the, 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 the dullness in us is because we forgot what was planted in our hearts long ago. It, it's, got, it's got pushed down. And, and the remnant are those who refuse to forget what was planted long ago. And, and, and when it feels a bit dull and when it doesn't feel on fire, they go digging and, and, the, and they blow wind on the embers and, and they get the bellows out and, and try and get it to burn again because they haven't forgot what it was like. So when God thinks of this word radical, he's thinking of something totally different to the radicalization and so on that we think of. When God thinks of radical, he's thinking of something so different that it's capable of pushing back the captivity of our hearts. Pushing back the captivity of our hearts. So here's radical point number one, radical truth number one. There is nothing you have done or that you can do to earn God's love. Now, what I'll tell you at this point is what I'm saying this morning is part of a two-part talk. If you go away with just with this morning, you'll get confused. So this is radical point number one. There's nothing you've done or can do to earn God's love for you. Now, that might seem like, oh, well, I knew that. That is extreme. That is revolutionary. Because whilst you've heard it before, whilst you've heard it in your head before, to actually live out of that place where... God is not on a down with you and you are not earning, having to earn his favour day in, day out. And every time you mess up, he's, he's, he's angry with you. That is revolutionary. That exists in no other religion. No other creed of man. That doesn't even exist in atheism. In atheism, you get what you earn with the sweat of your brow and nothing else. That is the most revolutionary statement on planet Earth. You see, Israel was in idolatry 
in exile because of their idolatry. And this world that had captivated them had made them captive. If you're captivated by something, eventually it will make your heart captive. And if we go on in this same passage, we, we, we come up with what's God's solution to this? What's God's solution? What's God's solution to that captivity of these people's hearts? So go down to verse 22. Because the basic point here is this. For things to change around us, change needs to take place within us. If anything's going to change in this world, we have to be the first place of change. And that's what God knows. And that's why he, re- he launched this radical plan of salvation that came to its fullness through Jesus. And here we go, verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, and and, and I'll read this right through and I'll come back and make some comments on it. I want you to pick up on something here. I want you to see in this passage what God is saying he is going to do. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So he's doing it so that God is restored as Lord and his name is not uh, disparaged because of the behavior of his church. You know, people have a really bad idea about what God's like and it's because of the church, not, about, not because of God. It's, it's, we, we've got the responsibility for that. And I will sanctify my great name I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So the nations know that God is Lord when he is adored or hallowed by his people, when their hearts turn back to him. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. Then you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be like your God. I will deliver you from all uncleanness. I will call the grain and multiply it and bring no famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. You know, people were laughing Israel because it didn't have enough food and that's something it hadn't experienced. Because previously, like in David's time, Solomon's time, people came to Israel to get food. People came to Israel to see its glory and its bounty. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you'll loathe yourselves in your own sights for your iniquities and your abominations. Old Testament words. Get over them. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your ways, O house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be filled instead of lying desolate in the sight of everybody who passes by. I don't know if you noticed your part in that. I don't know if you saw Israel's part in that. You didn't, because it hasn't got one. This is God saying, I will, I will. Ezekiel is prophesying what Christ came to make possible. The change in the heart of man, the cleansing of sin on a permanent basis, the price being paid once and for all. And God did it all himself. You had no part in it. 
It's not. You see, the, 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 the radical core of Christianity is it's not about our done, our do, or our could do. It's about his done. It's about his will. I will do this. And he willed to do it and he did do it. And he provided forgiveness. He provided salvation. He provided new birth. He provided the Holy Spirit coming to live in you. He provided your heart change. He gave you new life. He's the one who does it. Everything about Christianity is about his done. Thirteen times in those 11 verses, God says, I will do. Not once does he say, you will do. Or, if you do that, I will do this. He doesn't even say that. He just says, I will. And that is absolutely radical. You see, this, this isn't like a contract. In the Old Testament, they had this contract. It was called the law. And it was do good, and you got good. And do bad, and you get bad. We call that atheism these days. Everything just follows. You know, life just happens. It's all, all these things, and you don't get anything out of life unless you earn it. Christianity says, no, that's not true. God is a good father who, who wants to give to you these things because Christ paid for these things. And it's not anything you can do to mess up. You see, when Jesus did all this, when Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, it was 2,000 years ago. Now there's some pretty old people around. But I don't think we've got anybody in this congregation who was there at the time, have we? And that's good news because that means you can't mess it up. You can't change it. You can't rewrite it. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You can do nothing with it except receive it. You know, even the, even the, even the devil, he got his one shot at messing this up. And what did he do? He made it happen. That's how good and powerful God is. God actually used the devil's stupidity to bring about this for his glory. Because it says, if they'd understood what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. But they didn't understand, so they did do it, and God was glorified. You see, under the old ways, in the Old Testament, it was always about what you did in order to get blessed. And what you, you did bad, you got bad consequences called curses. Rubbish stuff happened. And it was all on a nation basis. It wasn't on an individual basis. And God said, this side of Jesus, that's gone. Because I've done it. I've done what I said I would do. That word... You know when it say, God keeps saying, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. That word we use, will, comes from an old English word, means, of, which is willian. I'm not saying it's a translation of that word, I'm just saying that that's where our word will comes from. And this old English word, willian, it means where a person sets their whole intent on making something happen. So God set his whole intent on making this happen for two reasons. One, to rescue us because we could never have rescued ourselves. And secondly, so that he would be glorified in doing so and people, the world would then turn to him and call him Lord. It's a twofold agenda. And we need to understand that. And I'm going to come back to that next week because it isn't just about him rescuing us. It's about him rescuing us without us doing it that the world will see that he is Lord. The ultimate plan is not us. The ultimate plan is us being saved and the world turning to God and him being glorified. I'll let you ponder that one.
Let me just read you another quote and then I'll, I'll bring it all to a, a conclusion. Hebrews 8, 8 to 12. This is actually um, Jeremiah speaking, not Ezekiel, but you'll see the similarities. This is, a, this is a quote from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was also a prophet to Judah, but he was a prophet to Judah before they were taken into exile in Babylon. So this is actually the first time God said this, and then he says it again through Ezekiel. Do you get the idea? So this is what he said. Because finding fault with him, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, so not like the covenant that you had before, not like the covenant I made with Abraham and Moses and David and all those guys, nothing like that, not like that covenant that I made with them in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, says the Lord, and I disregarded them. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for everyone will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I will be merciful to their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That is the radical salvation the core of Christianity. That God chose us, an undeserved, uncaring, rebellious people who didn't even care whether he did it or not, and he did it because he loved us. And it is not dependent on us. That is the most radical thing in the world. So here's what's so radical about Christianity. I'll need the worship team back up in a couple of minutes, Flick. Here's what's so radical about Christianity. God does not say there are things you need to do to get back to me. If that's what you're hearing, that's not God. He's just saying, come back to me. My arms are open. There's no prerequisites. There's no blocks on that access to his presence. God is not saying there are steps that you need to take to climb the ladder to get to heaven. There is no ladder in existence. There is an open access to God's presence right here, right now. And here's what he says. He's not saying, do this, fix that, get that sorted before I can deal with you. He's saying, I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to come down. I'm the one that came down to save you. I'm the one that's going to bring you back to me. And it's all going to be because I did it. And all you need to do is take one step, which is to believe it. Just, just believe that I did it for you. Just believe that, that that's all it is. That's all it takes. Is that step. That one step back. Don't, don't look at that mess. Don't look at... Everything that's gone wrong in your life. Don't look at all that stuff that you've done. Don't look at all that lies that, that has happened around you. Don't look at these things. Look at me. Take one step and walk right into my presence. 
It's faith. Faith in what he has done. See, this is the radical core, the root of Christianity. The far-reaching, comprehensive, thorough, mind-blowing center of everything that we believe. And this is what makes Christianity so radical. Because he loves you not because you are good enough. But he loves you because he is gracious enough and Jesus was good enough. And that's it. That's the gospel. There is nothing else. And you know what? That is the sort of saviour that I will give everything to follow. That is a saviour I have chosen to give my life to and not take it back. All of my life, not 5%, 7%, 10%, 20% if I'm feeling good about God. All of my life, unquestionably. Because when I didn't want him, he wanted me. And he made it possible when I never could have done. And that's why... I love him so radically. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. What we're going to do is some of us might think, well, I'm struggling a bit with that because I've got all this stuff that seems to block out God and, and I don't know how to get through. Well, you take the step and you're through. Some of us are thinking, well, there's too much mess in my life. Maybe I'll think about this when it's all sorted. Guys, we're in a war zone. It never gets sorted. We just go from one overcoming to another overcoming. But if you're worn down by the battle, I want you to come for prayer. If you think you've got too much mess that you can't connect with God, I want you to come for prayer. I want you to see how simple it is just to stand in God's presence and let him love you. So we're going to offer prayer over this side. If you want to come for prayer, come now. The rest of us are just going to worship a bit. We're going to do soft clothes. When you want to go for coffee, go for coffee. When you want to go for tea, go for tea. If you want to go for water, well, you need your caffeine. Go for the tea. Go for the coffee. But be blessed. And be a little bit more radical this week, eh? Amen.